Now, in the, the first four verses of Philippians 2, Paul told the Philippian church to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves. And the word there for humility in chapter 2, verse 3, it actually means humble-mindedness. Now, earlier in verse 2, Paul had told the, the Philippians to be of the same mind. And then he said to be in full accord and of one mind. And in verse 3, he tells them to be humble-minded. And after a little interlude in verse 4, where Paul, uh, uh, Paul speaks briefly there, he, he continues thinking about the mind as, uh, that we as Christians are to have when he writes... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus there in verse 5. Have this mind. The fourth reference to the word mind, the, the, way, the mind that we are to have in just a few verses. And this passage fits quite well with what Paul has been saying in our recent sermon passages in Colossians 3, where he told the Colossians to set their minds on the things that are above. And setting our minds on the things that are above, it is to have the mind of Christ. These two things are synonymous with one another. Now, no doubt that you've noticed or you've heard others say that today's passage, Philippians 5-11, to has a, a hymn-like quality to it. And there are some, in fact, many scholars believe that this passage contains a pre-Pauline hymn, which Paul incorporated into his, into his letter to the Philippians. That's possible. Uh, some, of, some of them, if that's true, if that turns out to be the case, you get to heaven and you realize that Paul took this hymn that was already circulating among the Christian brothers and sisters there in, in, uh, in the Mediterranean churches. Don't worry, okay? Sometimes we get a little worried when we think that there's something that's non-Pauline in Paul's epistles. It may be the case, but also maybe not. It could be that it's a hymn that Paul himself wrote. Now, those who promote that, oftentimes they're using it to say, see, not even one of, the Paul, one of Paul's letters that we know is Paul's letter was written by Paul, at least part of it. That doesn't need to worry us. This hymn it could have been composed by Paul himself, which the, he then included in the letter. But either way, whether it's a hymn or not, these verses contain truth. They contain truths that were and are to be held universally by Christians. Our passage this morning contains one of the most glorious Christ-exalting passages in all of Scripture, but it does so by showing us the depths of Christ's humiliation. And so as we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to, to hold this thought before you. Jesus Christ humbled himself to set you free from your enslavement to your selfish desires so that you can humbly serve others. Jesus Christ humbled himself to set you free from your enslavement to selfish desires, to your selfish desires, so that you can humbly serve others. The sermon has three parts. The first, humble yourselves. The second, Christ's humiliation. And the third, Christ's exaltation. So again, humble yourselves, that's the first part of the sermon. The second, Christ's humiliation. And the third, Christ's exaltation. So let's turn to, the, to, turn to the first part of the sermon, humble yourselves. Paul begins this passage with a commandment in verse 5. He tells the Philippian church, the brothers and sisters there, he tells us, he commands us to have this mind among yourselves. You are to have a certain mind, not, not a type of mindset. You're to have the mind of Christ is what he's saying. But then he continues, which is yours? 
in Christ Jesus. You already have the mind that Paul is commanding you to have. He's commanding the Philippians to be unselfish in their mindset. He's saying that their attitude must be the same as Christ's, who was willing to suffer for the sake of others' eternal well-being. Now, you may be sitting there going, what, what gives? He, he, he says, have this mind among yourselves, and then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? You already have it. So he's, he's commanding them to have something, which he then says they already possess. What he's saying is that if we have been made alive in Christ, we are already partakers of the mind of Christ. We are joined together with him in a holy union. And so what's his is ours. So Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul is exhorting you to become what you already are. It's kind of a weird thing to say, kind of a weird thing to think about. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's some like... Somewhat like when you were a child. And, and you were either a boy or you were a girl. Right? You were male or you were female. I, I know that, that those categories in the wider culture have been confused. We're not talking about that. You were male or you were, fa- were female uh, as a boy or as a girl. But you weren't fully grown. You, you had not fully grown into that at that point. You weren't a man or a woman yet. You hadn't reached maturity. And so Paul is saying that if you have the mind of Christ, you have the mind of Christ already, but it hasn't fully matured in you. You haven't fully grown into it, right? That's what he's getting at. It's sort of a crude analogy. It doesn't work out. Don't press it too far. You'll be calling me up tomorrow and saying, hey, what gives? This, this is falling apart, and now I've fallen into heresy. Don't, don't push it too far. But, but it helps us to understand a little bit about what Paul is saying. You have it already but you're not full grown yet. Paul expects you and I, expects us to be humble and unselfish and to serve each other in love because you already have the mind of Christ. You don't have to go out searching for it. It's your possession. And so when a Christian behaves in a selfish way, he is denying who he truly is. What's tough for us, I think, sometimes as Christians is is to discern what is being selfish and and what is necessary for us. And that's the tough part. That's where maturity comes in, right? It's it's very difficult to know. You've got to draw a line at some point. Where is that line drawn? That's the difficulty. That's where wisdom and maturity comes into play. We'll we'll get into that a little more uh, later in the sermon. But remember that in this letter, Paul is writing to members of a church that he started 10 to 15 years prior with his first converts on European soil. These are people he's known for a while. These are, these are people he holds as precious. They go way back with him. And he looks at them, not in a condescending way, but he looks at them as his spiritual sons and daughters. And he loves them deeply. But he's also concerned for the church at Philippi because they are now experiencing some discord. In chapter 4, Paul urges the women, Euodia and Syntyche, he urges them, these two women who once labored with Paul to start the church, he urges them to agree in the Lord. They did not have the same mind. They were not of the same mind with one another. There was discord in the church. There was disunity. There was disharmony. The, the, The peace had been disturbed for some reason or another. And so Paul is telling them, And the wider church, you can't just blame it on these two poor women, but he's telling the wider church there at Philippi, have the same mind, the mind of Christ. 
And he's already given them the crucial component of successfully working together as the body of Christ. They must have the same attitude of Christ toward one another that he had toward them. In other words, believers are to serve one another in humility, to stop putting our own selfish desires before our brothers and sisters in order to strengthen the entire body. I put the emphasis there on selfish. Because that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean in serving one another, putting the needs of others before our own, it doesn't mean that we essentially work ourselves into the grave. We're in a sense no good to the church if we're dead. If we work ourselves to death. And I know we, we esteem and we, we want to emulate those, the reformers, Calvin and, and Luther and, and other men, and they died young. Calvin was what, in his 40s? He died young. Okay, you go ahead and emulate Calvin there. <laughs> I wouldn't mind living a little bit longer. We have to know where the line is. We have to know what our limits are. And perhaps our limits change and flex with time or with, with our abilities or, or the infirmities that we might be suffering at any, any given time. But we should not let our selfish desires dictate how we serve other people. We have to stop putting those first. And so what this means for our church is that each of you must share in the responsibility that you have to build each other up in the faith. It means that each person here has the responsibility to pray for each other. Now, hopefully you, you know and you trust that, that you're, you're, the members of your session, your, your pastor, uh, your teacher, your elders, that we're praying for you. Hopefully you know that, you trust that we are. But that's not enough. You need to be praying for each other. You need to know each other's names. You need to be praying for each other. That's why we do things like we're going to do next week and bring a guy up who we have already admitted into the membership of this church, but we want to make sure you know him so that you can pray for him and you can be an encouragement to him. It also means that you get to help in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ so that God's elect will hear his voice and be brought into the fold with the rest of God's people. But this kind of service, and, and there are other kinds, certainly what I just said was not exhaustive, this kind of service in which so many of you are already engaged, it requires humility on everyone's part. And humility can only come in the life of a person who has been made new in Christ. Only those whose minds have been transformed and renewed can be humble-minded. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, Christ's humiliation. Now we know that Christ, Jesus Christ, is not merely an example for us as to how we are to live. He, he was basically reduced to an example uh, by uh, in an earlier era of the church by, by certain people. It's all he was. He wasn't the son of God. He, he didn't do miracles. But boy, what a great example he was. Well, if that's the case, and he was a really good liar... And we probably don't want to follow him, because he was a charlatan. But he is an example. He's the Son of God, absolutely, in the flesh. We affirm that. We do not deny it. But he's also our elder brother in Christ. He's our elder brother. We are to emulate him. We're to follow his lead. And verses 6 to 8 deal with what has come to be known as Christ's humiliation. Sorry, I'm on the verge of sneezing. So, let's see what happens there. Uh, Christ's humiliation specifically deals with Jesus' conception, his birth, his life, and his death. Now, when you hear the word humiliation, what do you think of? For me, it's that time when I was walking through the cafeteria in high school, 
carrying my tray of food, which really wasn't that good, but hey, I was going to eat it for all it was worth, and slipping and falling and spilling everything across the floor. But that's embarrassment. It's not the same thing. It's really, okay, I guess I was humiliated, but when I think about what my Lord suffered, it's, it's not humiliation, is it? But that's what we think of. I was humiliated. Well, okay, I said something stupid in front of a large group of people. Probably not exactly humiliated. But, but humbled, sure. Embarrassed, absolutely. But humiliation is, we're getting ready to get a lesson in what that means. Because what Christ did in giving up his place in heaven was true humiliation. His attitude was one of complete abasement. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. He he brought himself down. He utterly forsook his position of prominence and his own interests and put human beings before himself by becoming a human being himself. And that's what Paul is describing in verses 6 to 8. In these words, Paul describes Christ's humility, and his description hinges on his use of the word form in relation to his divine and human natures. Now verse 6 says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word form does not simply mean that he looks like God. He's sort of got an appearance of God, maybe he's a demigod, he's he's like a God, but he's not God. That's not what it means. Form here in Paul's usage, it goes much, much deeper than what's on the surface. And though Hebrews, we don't think, was written by the Apostle Paul, I suppose it could have been. Some of our previous generation of theologians believe that it was. Whether or not it was, Hebrews 1.3 sheds light on this idea of the divine form of Christ. Where we read there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. But then turning to what Paul has written, helping us to get a little better understanding of his understanding of what form means, he writes in Colossians 1.19, For in Him... All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Paul's mind, in in the Bible's mind, if we could put it that way, Jesus Christ is none other than God in the flesh. That's what form means. The Son of God is the same in form as God the Father. He is the exact imprint of His nature. And as Hebrews 1.3 also alludes, the form of God, that which unmistakably identifies Him as God, is His glory. So Paul says that this form of God, this equality with Him in glory was not something that he clung to. He didn't didn't grasp it. He didn't hang on to it like a dictator holds on to his power and his position in a a nation, in a government. Those who belong in authority don't have to cling to their position of authority. Jesus belonged there. Instead, as verse 7 says, Christ emptied himself, or he made himself nothing. Now, some of you have the ESV, you might have an older version where it says he emptied himself. I'm sorry, a newer version says he emptied, older version, he made himself nothing. The word there, it's translated, Paul uses it, he's the only one, only author in the New Testament who uses this word that's translated emptied. Most of the time it's in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Here in Philippians there's one other use, I think five times in the New Testament, and it just means emptied or void. We've I guess conservative theologians, the conservatives, we, we've moved away from using the word he emptied himself. Why is that? Well, it's because the theological liberals seized a hold of that, that language, that terminology. And they said, you see what this means is, is he emptied himself of his divinity. 
right? He, he set his divinity aside. When he was here on earth, Jesus Christ was merely man, merely human, not the God-man, not 100% divine and 100% human in one person. And so conservatives said, okay, well, we've got we to gotta get rid of that term. We can't use it anymore. And so for a long time, translations used language like he made himself nothing. He abased himself. But he emptied himself. It's, it's what the Greek says. And, and it's time for us to take that language back and to use it. It's okay. That, that theory that, that, that was uh, gained uh, a, a real strong foothold in, in more liberal circles it became known as the kenosis theory. And so if you ever hear that, it's derived from the Greek word that's translated he emptied, kenosis. And that's, that's how they use it. That's not how we mean it. So we're careful. We divide, define the word very carefully but that's the original meaning. It doesn't mean, however, that Christ, and Paul never intended for us to take it to mean that Christ set aside his divinity. That, that's impossible. That, that's one thing that God cannot do. There are very few things God can't do, but there are some, and that's one. He can't, he can't lie. He can't sin. He cannot set aside his divinity. It, it's, a, it's a contradiction, a logical uh, fallacy that he could possibly do something like that. If we say that Christ emptied himself of his divinity, we are saying that he was nothing more than a regular human being. And Paul would never say that in any of his letters. To empty himself of his divinity would be to lose his essential nature. God would stop being God, which is impossible. And so we affirm that even in his humiliation, even in his incarnation, Jesus was and he still is God. There has never and will never be a time when he is not God. And so what this verse means by Christ emptying himself is that he emptied himself uh, by the very act of putting on a human nature. And when he put on a human nature, when he wrote himself in flesh, if we want to think of it that way, he covered his glory. His glory was obscured. His glory was hidden. But his divinity was still there. He gave up his position of authority for a time, but not his divinity. And so in emptying himself, Paul means that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 from the NIV. His glory was cloaked by his humanity. But we can also understand the concept of Christ emptying himself to mean that he poured himself out for us. All that he had, he gave to us. To use a sports phrase, he left nothing on the field. He left it all out there. He gave himself up for us. And so that's how we can also understand the phrase, he emptied himself. Well, the very next phrase in verse 7, it tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant, literally a slave. And again, rather than emptying himself of his divinity, he added to his divinity a human nature, a slave nature in a sense. And so just as being in the form of God means that he is fully God, so taking the form of a servant or a slave means that he became fully man. Jesus' main motivation in descending to earth was to save sinners. And in order to do this, he had to become fully man while remaining fully God. Salvation is not possible if our Savior is anything less than fully God and fully man. The last part of verse 7, being born in the likeness of men, it deals with that specific point in time when some 2,000 years ago Mary gave birth to Jesus. 
the eternal Son of God had added to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, to use the language of the Westminster Confession, and so was God in human flesh. God, becoming man, epitomizes humility. In fact, I probably have picked up on this, human and humility share the same root as the English word humus, which means soil, dirt, earth, dust. Jesus, in taking up a human nature and body, literally became of the ground. He became the second Adam, a name which means the one formed from the ground. However, Paul says that he humbled himself by doing something more than becoming a man. So that if this weren't uh, humiliating enough, uh, as we, if we were to put it that way, he did, he did something more. Paul says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The everlasting Son of God obeyed his Father's will, and it was his Father's will to crush him because of our sins being laid upon him. He was obedient to this because it was necessary that he should suffer these things. As Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, it was necessary that Christ should suffer and die because God chose to save for himself a people from sin and death. It was necessary because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God in his great love and his compassion for his people chose to save them from their sin and his wrath. But the eternal son of God suffered an even deeper humiliation than simply dying. Jesus was obedient to death of the most, of the most accursed kind for the Jew. He died on a tree. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, the Old Testament says. It was by this humiliating death on the cross that his father's plan to save sinners was accomplished. And he did this so that sinners like you and me would be able to spend the rest of eternity with him. Christ's humiliation, his putting on flesh, his dying on the cross, has freed us from enslavement to our own selfish sin and the wrath that it deserves. It has set us free to serve each other in humility. Jesus was born into poverty. He lived a life of sorrow. He was powerless with regard to human power. He, he had nothing. He had no influence in terms of political or, 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 or any other kind of power. He was rejected by his followers. He was put to death by the very people who should have welcomed him as their Messiah. And it wasn't enough to execute him. He was executed on the accursed cross. And for a period of three times. So here's the, the last what's more. As if it couldn't get any more humiliating for him for a period of three days. He was under the power of death. All so that sinners could be reconciled to God. This is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ and to put others before yourself. Now you can't die in the place of another human being. You can't do it. You could try if you wanted. You can't do it. You, you might be able... To, to, I guess, throw yourself in front of something that might be going to harm another human being. That's probably as close as you can get, but it will not atone for their sins. But you can serve each other in love. And so again, this cautionary note I've been sounding, for most of us, our, our problem is that because of our selfishness, we don't put others before ourselves enough. But some people don't know where to draw the line. 
And some people do too much to the point where they're unhealthy. It's not good for them. You've been given the mind of Christ. It's true. But you're not Jesus Christ. You can't go for 40 days in the wilderness without food or water. You are not God in the flesh. Know your limits. Set your boundaries. Be careful, but do not let your boundaries be an excuse for you so that you never serve your brother or sister or someone in need. Have boundaries, yes. But don't draw them so closely to yourself that you never, ever show the love of Christ to another human being. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, Christ's exaltation. Verses 6 to 8 taught us about Jesus' descent into humiliation. Verses 9 to 11 teaches about his ascent to the highest heavens. Now, these verses deal with Christ's resurrection and his ascension, his exaltation. This is his elevation by his Father to a position above all others. Now, Jesus, uh, Paul, Paul tells us rather that God highly exalted Jesus. In John 17 verse 5, near the end of his life, Jesus asked his Father to restore him to the glory that he had before the world existed. And Paul is reporting to us that God, his Father, has answered that prayer. In restoring his glory, Jesus was raised up to the highest position over heaven and earth as a reward for his perfect obedience. And in addition to this, his father also gave him the name that is above all names. The only name that that can be, the only name that this can be, is Yahweh. Verse 11 says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord, as you probably well know, is the word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in place of the Hebrew word Yahweh. In fact, most of our English Bibles use Lord in all capital letters for Yahweh in the Old Testament. For a Jew like Paul, there is no higher name for God than Yahweh. Again, you might be thinking here, you hear this, well, Jesus Christ, he's ascended to heaven. At the last day, that is the day of judgment, he's going to be given that name that is above all other names. And you're thinking, well, I thought he already had that name. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was already God before he came to earth. He already had that name, Yahweh. And the Son of God, who is fully God, would have been enthroned in the highest heights of heaven before his incarnation. Now he's just going back. Now, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if the son was returning to his father's side exactly the way he left his father's side, exactly the way he was before he came to earth and became man. But upon returning to heaven, Christ did not give up his humanity. He didn't shed his flesh at the pearly gates and return to his state, uh, the state that he was in before his incarnation. That's the significance of what Paul is saying here. The God who became the God-man, who became of the earth, God in the flesh, is now seated on the throne. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, has been given the name that is above all other names, Yahweh. That's what's different. That's why it's important. This name was a gift given out of the Father's love for His Son. It showed His highest approval for everything that Jesus accomplished on earth, for Jesus' perfect obedience to His Father's will. And because He has been given this highest of all names, at the name of Jesus, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Yahweh. Now, Coming here to worship God this morning is a present fulfillment of what Paul says about every knee bowing. It's also fulfilled whenever a sinner puts his faith in Christ and repents of his sin, begins to worship uh, Christ, worship God in, in, in truth and faithfulness. 
But there will be a future fulfillment, and at the final judgment, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. And every tongue in heaven and on the earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. God's people will bow in celebration of Jesus' victory over the power of sin and death. And God's enemies will bow in defeat, finally, at last, acknowledging their Lord and Master. In the same way, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name Yahweh will be on the lips of every person, friend or foe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God so loved his son that he has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above all names. And it is out of this great love for his son and for his people that God allows you to share in Christ's exaltation. Ephesians 2 verses 6 and 7 says this, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You too are made partakers in the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. One day you will reign with him in glory, but in the meantime you are called to be like Jesus, serving one another in humility. That's for those who believe. We read there, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, friend and foe, beloved and enemy. But does that mean that on that last day, those who confess, everyone who confesses, that everyone then is accepted in God's sight? No. The enemies of God will do it. They will say it. They will bend their knee, but they will do so grudgingly. They will do so because they have been broken. They've been made aware of their defeat. But at that point, it is too late for them, brothers and sisters. The gospel is not proclaimed. The reign and the lordship of Christ is proclaimed. And he is acknowledged by every living human being and every human being who who has died. He will be acknowledged on that day. That is why it is so important now to proclaim the gospel because on that day it will be too late and those who are being forced to bend their knee because they recognize that they have been conquered they will not be with the Lord in heaven for eternity they will suffer the punishment that is due unto them for their rebellion and their sin and their hatred of God that is why It's important for us now to humble ourselves, to count others as better and more important than ourselves, to show the love of Jesus Christ by having the mind of Christ, and show that love of Christ to others, our neighbors, our friends, and our foes, our enemies, those who hate us and hate our Lord. Paul has told us about the eternal Son of God's willingness to give up His exalted position in heaven in order humbly to serve those who were once His enemies. Christ died for sinners like you and me. For Paul, Christ's life and His death and His resurrection and also His ascension, they weren't only merely historical facts. They have the power to change people's lives. Everyone who has placed their faith in Christ has been set free from their enslavement to sin. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer a slave to your selfishness. You have been made free. 
And that means, at least in part, that you are free to serve your neighbor without selfish motives. You're no longer angling for a quid pro quo. You're no longer looking for something to be be given back to you in return. You can labor in the church as you seek to build the kingdom of God without feeling like you're trying to earn God's favor. You've been set free from that. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set you free. And His mind has become your mind. Grow into that. Believe it. Trust in it. And follow God's word. That, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray.